0: the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern-day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time and be about the work of saving lives. This is a prologue episode for those people out there that aren't exactly sure they know what human trafficking is. So this is sort of a human trafficking 101. So what is human trafficking? We know it as modern day slavery and slavery is exactly what it is when someone else has to work and another person profits when someone is paid very little or not paid at all and that's human trafficking. There are men, women, children. Any of those folks can be human trafficking victims. Most often, the types of human trafficking are human trafficking in terms of sex trafficking or labor trafficking. There are three illegal enterprises around the world, gun sales, drug sales, and the sale of humans. In 2000, in the U.S., the federal government passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and so, what that basically did was acknowledge that we had these modern-day slaves on U.S. soil, and it broke down the definitions of sex trafficking as follows: so, sex trafficking is the recruitment, the harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining of a person for a commercial sex act in which that sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion, or if the person has not reached the age of eighteen. So. If someone is under the age of 18, we don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. The U.S. government says that any child under the age of 18 cannot consent to commercially sell themselves, that they are a victim of a crime, and that crime is sex trafficking. Labor trafficking is the recruitment, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. For the purpose of subjection to involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. The Global Slavery Index estimates that there are about 40.3 million slaves in the world today. And so when you're talking about a number that large, it's very difficult to have an accurate estimate. And so all of these types of estimates that you'll read around the world have been largely criticized because Of the illegal nature of the crime, it's very hard to come up with a credible estimate, but that's the estimate that we have so far. The U.S. has two campaigns that are largely going on. One of them is called Look Beneath the Surface, and you'll see that on various posters and things like that, and that's really telling people in the U.S., you know, in your jobs and where you go about your day, look beneath the surface. You may see a victim... And then they ask you to call the national hotline, which is 888-3737-888. The other campaign that the U.S. has is called Rescue and Restore. And in the Rescue and Restore model, they ask professionals, for instance, criminal justice, to rescue, to investigate and those types of things. And then the restore really belongs in the purview of social workers, clinical counselors, peer mentors, healthcare, those types of things. When we're thinking about human trafficking, human trafficking is really a business and it is about supply or the victims that are involved, demand the customers, and then sort of distribution and the whole business run by traffickers. There are various types of labor trafficking happening in the U.S. and around the world. In the U.S. and around the world, but we've seen in the U.S. domestic servitude, people that are brought here into the U.S. and work in people's homes as private nannies or maids and things like that. But the issue is they're not allowed to quit. And that's what makes it a trafficking situation. It's like you can go into a job and be horribly exploited by an employer who is uh, following the minimum of the law. Labor trafficking is when you're being exploited and you are in fear of quitting your job. You're not allowed to quit your job. So you see these people in domestic servitude that are working for minimum or no pay at all. We see people working in sweatshops and factories. Sometimes they've had people begging. They've had kids, both American and foreign, involved in candy sales or magazine sales. People who are working agricultural work or working in restaurants or ethnic buffets, maybe nail salons, maybe doing manual labor. Around the world, you'll see child soldiers, people working in brick kilns children who fish all day. There are many, many red flags to look for when you're looking for labor trafficking victims. You might see people who are dehydrated. If they're working outside, a lot of heat, stress. Maybe there are bars on the windows. Maybe they can't just walk out and leave and go down the street whenever they want to or get in the car, or catch the bus and go across town. They're really controlled. And there are lots, lots more indicators of labor trafficking. The best place to go to find information is really PlayersProject.org. They have lots of good, easy-to-read information about the red flags or indicators of labor trafficking. Same thing is true, sex trafficking, PlayersProject.org is a good place to go. Shared Hope International focuses on domestic minor sex trafficking or American youth that are being trafficked into the sex trade. They also have some offices in other countries as well. But you can go to Shared Hope International to find out information about U.S. born kids. In sex trafficking, you have men and women, boys and girls that are victims, although it's predominantly girls and women that may be victims of sex trafficking. And they're working in prostitution, pornography. Maybe they're stripping, doing lap dancing, live sex shows. Maybe they're being sold online online. You'll see people from other countries being brought into the U.S. as mail order brides or child brides. And again, some of the red flags for sex trafficking may be the same, particularly if someone's a sex trafficking victim who's also a labor trafficking victim. And some people do say that it should just all be called labor trafficking because even if you're working in the sex trade, that's still work. It's still labor, but we separate them out between labor trafficking and sex trafficking. So there are many, many indicators and red flags for sex trafficking, particularly if you're talking about minors, domestic minors or American-born youth. And we'll talk about some of those risk factors as we go through the podcast. There are many, many risk factors, but for foreign victims, as well as for domestic adults, as well as minors, some of the indicators might be a young person that runs away from home because Being a runaway is a high-risk category, somebody with adult or, or youth with a lot of recurring sexually transmitted infections or urinary tract infections, maybe an abnormally high number of sexual partners maybe trauma to the vagina or the rectum, repeated abortions or miscarriages. If somebody's young and they're 14 years old and their boyfriend's 27, That that's probably going to be an indicator because they have a much older boyfriend. Using the language of sex trafficking in the U.S., sometimes youth are forced to call their trafficker daddy. The women that are other girls that are involved under the control of that trafficker vis-a-vis pimp have to call each other wife-in-laws or they might use that language. The bottom, who is like the assistant manager sometimes in these organized crime outfits, is known as the bottom or the bottom bitch. And she's sort of the person in control, in charge, when the trafficker isn't available. So some of the language that you might hear if somebody presents in a hospital setting or in a restaurant or in a beauty salon, you might hear some of this language going on that's gonna tip you off. Maybe this is a trafficking situation. I wanna talk a little bit about organ trafficking because that generally happens in terms of getting organs from third-world countries and selling those organs to first-world countries like the U.S. and Japan and Germany. So some of the common organs are kidneys, liver, heart, lungs, pancreas. In international trafficking, there are recruitment countries, and those are typically third-world countries, where there's a lot of political unrest or instability in the economy, or uh, very few women's rights. And those folks are recruited and sent to destination countries, which are first world countries like the U.S. They're bi-directional countries where people are brought into the country and also sold from the country. People that are recruited successfully are typically vulnerable people. And they're vulnerable because they're looking to improve their life situation. And they're typically recruited by giving some story. They oftentimes believe that they're going to come into the country and they're going to be working legitimate jobs and they have no idea that when they get here, they're trafficked into the labor or the sex trade. Even if they did understand that they wanted to enter the country illegally and then they're trafficked here once they get into the country, they're still going to be seen as a trafficking victim. And under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, People who are labor or sex trafficking victims can receive services in the U.S. So they can receive a temporary visa, they can receive legal services, health services, social services, and also support for their families. For foreign victims, there's most always they're involved in a debt bondage system where they're brought into the U.S., for example, and they have to work off their debt. They have to pay their debt to earn their freedom. And that debt is set so high that they never get a chance to to pay it off. So you might be working in a massage parlor, maybe forced to sell sexual services six or seven days a week. Maybe at the end of that week, they hand you money, maybe $50. Maybe you don't even understand what $50 amounts to, but they might take 40 of it and say, okay, well, this is to go for your room and board, or this is to pay for your food and all these things. Do you want $10 to go on your debt? Or maybe they send you know, $20 back to your home country, to your family, because they also have an interest in your family, believing that you're here working a legitimate job and you're helping to support that family so that they don't get suspicious. And then they say, well, you know, this is for room, board, this is for cigarettes, food, and here's $10 towards your debt of $10,000. So it's designed for you to never really be able to pay off your debt and earn your freedom. So why is it so difficult for us to identify these victims? I think in the U.S., we aren't that educated on what to look for. And even when we see it, we sort of have this funny feeling in our gut, like something isn't right here. But a lot of times we're not educated enough. We don't know what to name it. We don't know what to call it. So in the meantime, victims are being controlled, most often psychologically more than physically, by the traffickers. So they're not going to speak up. They move victims around enough so that the victim doesn't get brave enough to build a relationship with someone who can help them escape. Or, you know, there's situations where they've convinced themselves that they're not a victim, that they are going to pay this debt off, that they are going to earn their freedom. Or in the case of domestic minors who think they're dating a boyfriend who turns into a trafficker, well, he's going to love me or he does love me and this is for the best. Victims also really distrust law enforcement and The reason that is, if they're a foreign victim, they discover that they're in this country, this person's controlling them, and they think that the U.S. is going to deport them or prosecute them. They may not understand that we've passed a law to protect them. Domestic minors, on the other hand, also don't really trust law enforcement because we have recently, in the 2000s, passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which says that we recognize these young people as victims, but we also still very much stigmatize young people involved in prostitution as if it's their fault. And so, and still in some states, the first thing we do when we supposedly rescue a victim is we put them in juvenile detention. And so kids don't watch what we say, they watch what we do. So uh, as soon as they disclose and they go to juvenile detention, that is a place where you go when you've done something wrong. And so it's very hard for us to kind of talk out of both sides of our face saying that, oh, you're a victim. And then we put you in detention. And so, you know, people say to me, well, we do that because we want to protect them. And I understand that it's it's done in, with the best intentions. And so. You know, I often say to people, well, let's say you came to one of my presentations and as you're sitting here enjoying the presentation, somebody's at home and they, they at your house and they burglarize your house. So you go back home, you find out your house is burglarized. You call the police, the police come and the police say, well, you know what? I'm really afraid that these burglars are going to come back and you're going to be home and it's going to go from a burglary to a robbery. So I'm going to take you to jail for your own safety. How many people are going to go along with that? No, you're not, because you're going to say, I have civil rights, my right to be free if I have not committed a crime. So we still haven't dealt with that issue very successfully yet in terms of how we're going to help minor victims without incarcerating them. Because the other side of the coin is when we don't arrest them and hold them just enough time to get services to them, then sometimes they disappear. And they're gone back out in the street or they're gone in the night and we know they're at risk and there's nothing we can do about it. And so we can't really give them the services that we know that they need. So it's still a dilemma. Other risk factors for international folks or people that might be here in the country and not speak English and that's not a risk factor in and of itself, but it, when it is accompanied by other things, like very submissive behavior, maybe looking at the potential trafficker before answering, maybe the trafficker answers instead of this person. But again, you know, submissive behavior, not a lot of eye contact, is sort of a, could be a cultural thing. So these are things that have to add up over time, not just looking at a singular, suspicious activity. You know, maybe there's inconsistent stories. Maybe there's something that isn't consistent with an injury or a job that they talked about. Maybe somebody's missing identification or somebody else is controlling or holding their identification. So there would have to be elements that you sort of link together that gives you this uneasy feeling to say, maybe this is a trafficking victim. Both domestic victims and foreign victims feel Helpless. They feel like they can't get out of this situation. Most feel shame. And, you know, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, you feel guilty when you've done something wrong. And and that's an appropriate emotion when you've done something wrong. In this situation, you haven't done anything wrong. You've been duped into this situation. But shame is what you feel when you are something wrong. And so we should never feel shame because how do you, how in the world do you fix that? Humiliation. Sometimes victims feel they're in denial because they think they're going to work themselves out of the situation, and if they're a foreign victim, they may experience culture shock where they don't even understand US law or US customs all that well to be able to get themselves out of a situation like this. Over time, victims commonly experience trauma bonding or Stockholm syndrome, and that's really a common phenomenon across kidnappings and and experiences like that. And that's really when someone has taken you into a space that is very threatening. There are most often the only voice you hear, the most important voice you hear. You hear their thoughts, their opinions, their behaviors. You begin to fear them and love them because any small kindness that they show you is amplified because you are in survival mode. And so that the body, the psyche has an uncanny ability to survive. And so if my trafficker, if my captor, so to speak, is happy and satisfied, then I get to keep breathing. And so it's the body's way, it's the mind's way of surviving. And so I begin to identify with that trafficker. And when Joe Cop knocks down the door to come in to rescue us, I'm not happy about that because I think my trafficker is going to be hurt and going to be harmed. And that in turn is going to hurt and harm me because I believe this person is all powerful. I believe that by the time you figure out what's going on, my family may be hurt or dead or my house burned down because he has that kind of power to do that. And and that's what I mean by psychological control more than physical control. A lot of the media and movies and things will tell you that, you know, they're snatching kids off the street and chaining them to beds and, and selling them for sex. That's not really common. I'm sure that has happened, but it's not really common. It's more common that you get manipulated and groomed into participating in your own victimization. Because when I act like I'm your boyfriend or I love you, if I can manipulate the mind, I can control the mind. I don't have to physically control the body. You're not gonna go anywhere because you love me and you fear me and you think I'm all powerful. So we always ask when we're out talking to groups, we ask people to consider buying fair trade, because fair trade is your guarantee that everybody along that supply chain that's working, even the guy picking the coca beans in the field, is getting a livable wage to take care of his family. And so, you know, you'll give charity, you'll write a check to charity, but you won't pay $2 more for an item because, you know, we're trained as Americans to try to get the cheapest deal. But if we will consider buying that fair trade item, that's our guarantee that we're not giving charity, we're giving empowerment. We're making sure that everybody along that supply chain is getting paid a fair wage and they're able to take care of their families. So I invite you as well to go to slaveryfootprint.org because that's a great website. Take the survey and it sort of points out to you how many slaves worked for you today. So you put in things like what you eat and what you drink. And likely if you had coffee today, if you had chocolate or if you had sugar, you probably had some slaves work for you today. And so it's just a good wake up call to get you to really consider buying fair trade. So. In cities across the U.S., in my city, we have an FBI task force, one of the innocence Lost task forces that the federal government has dispatched across the country. And I'm in Toledo, Ohio, by the way. But there are a lot of communities now, states and cities that have put together task forces. And the reason we need these human trafficking task forces is because human trafficking is an organized crime. You know, there's some high-powered syndicate people that might be involved, but also mom and pop shops and small operations. But what they do is they all represent individual links in a chain. And so it's not good if somebody just arrests one person or a pimp or something like that, slaps them on the wrist like we used to do in the seventies, and that person gets back out of jail, links with that chain, and the whole business continues. And so, task forces understand the entire organized cell and they work to remove that whole cell not just arrest a link in the chain there was an estimate at one time from the national center for missing exploited children that about 100,000 young people are trafficked into the sex trade but that that research that statistic wasn't really wasn't really scientific although they do report that a number of kids that do run away and are involved in sex trafficking. A large number of those kids are also involved in child protection foster kids, things like that. I can't exactly recall the statistic right now, but a high number of those kids have been involved in foster care. Now I want to talk about, you know, child sex trafficking in general. When we're talking about child sex trafficking, we're really talking about kids 10 to 17, 12 to 17. So there's some information traveling around the internet that infants are being trafficked and 10 to 12 years old is the average age of a trafficking victim and things like that. Those statistics really there isn't much science behind that and there isn't a lot of that going on. Although infants I'm sure are trafficked and young children I'm sure are trafficked into the sex trade, but When you look at the range of ages of young people up to the age of 18 or 17, you see an average number about 14 or 15 is the average age because, you know, there's some that are 16 or 17. There are some that are 12 and 13, but 14 and 15 seems to be the average age where you see victims. I have interviewed a victim that was 10 years old, so it's not... An impossibility, but we don't need to sensationalize something by saying it's younger and younger victims when it's already tragic enough. So, if you're under 18 and you are a child sex trafficking victim, that is a tragedy. And that's what we all need to be working to stop. Now, what sort of binds all of these victims together? It's vulnerability, you know, young people that are vulnerable. And that's really. The tie that binds, whether this person is white or black or rich or poor, vulnerability is really places youth at risk. And it's those youth at risk that are likely to be approached and successfully recruited. So when we're talking about populations, we're talking about, it's more likely that youth in poverty, youth of color, LBGT, Q youth, foreign-born youth, youth with disabilities, those are the populations that are at higher risk. So when people go around talking about, uh, well, anybody can be trafficked. Yes, that's true. Anybody can be trafficked. But who is more likely to be trafficked? Who statistically is likely to be trafficked? It's those groups. It's not going to be so much uh, somebody in white middle class America. Although I know trafficking victims that actually came from white middle class America. But more likely, it's going to be somebody living in poverty, a person of color, somebody already vulnerable for various reasons. Also, kids that have been involved in child protection or juvenile court, homeless kids, runaway youth. Runaway youth, we just did a study and just published it this year, 2019. Runaway youth is the highest risk factor of all the youth that we surveyed and interviewed. Youth that have older boyfriends, maybe gang-affiliated type youth, youth that do poorly in school. Those are all risk factors for young people to be successfully recruited. Who's likely to recruit young people into the sex trade? Well, not the scary, creepy guy, okay? So we, we can stop watching those movies. Everybody's been trained to stay away from the scary, creepy guy. So traffickers are likely to send young guys, 16, 17, who act like they want to date a young girl, or a lot of recruitment goes on among girls that are 14 and 15 trying to recruit somebody, 13, 14, 15. You know, and developmentally, what do young people want to do at this age? They want to belong to a group. And so it's pretty easy. To recruit a young vulnerable girl who may be lonely, maybe need basic things, to recruit them into a group and then introduce them to the trafficker. Women are also recruiters. Women who look like moms, mom type figures, and some young person needs a mom, they're vulnerable, and they want a mother figure in their life. Or the adult cool woman that everybody wants to hang out with because she has the coolest car or, you know, she wears the coolest clothes. I mean, those are the people then that are going to be the recruiters, very safe looking people. Where are young people being recruited? Well, not in the scary back alley. That is the movie of the week or something like that. We got to stop watching those type of shows. A lot of kids are recruited in very safe looking places So like shopping malls, high schools, kids that are vulnerable that go to social service type of groups, juvenile detention, or you're sitting out there waiting for your probation officer, I can sit next to you, strike up a conversation, get to know you and and start recruiting you because that's where vulnerable kids go. Online, social media, websites, apps, games, those types of things is that's where recruitment's going to happen. Where are you sold? Well, usually a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old, that's that's a premium product. That's the gold standard. So I'm not going to take that young person and put them on the street where the bargain basement prices are. And that's why you don't see kids kind of out on the streets involved in prostitution. What you see on the street is sort of the adult woman that is now drug addicted. That's the woman that we get back to our cities once they're trafficked. So 77% of our kids that are trafficked that we don't do anything about, 77% of those folks will end up in adult prostitution street level, out in the street, likely addicted to drugs, high risk of HIV, poor mental health, uh, experiencing extreme and pervasive violence. We somehow feel justified driving by to say, well, you know, you took yourself out there, that's your business, I'm not going to help you. And what we need to realize is that those are the kids that we missed, and we bear some responsibility to help those women. So we see kids being sold at private homes, private parties, strip clubs, maybe convention centers, some sporting events. You see kids and women being sold at truck stops because that's still very much a bread and butter place where you see transient men with money in their pockets. So you still see that happening. And to see kids sold online. Of course, we just had that big federal case about Backpage going on. And if you don't know about that, you know, do some Googling and you'll find out. Just put in sex trafficking and Backpage and you can read the whole history and the court case and the politicians involved in that fight. So young people are typically recruited using sort of finesse pimping techniques. There's finesse pimping and gorilla pimping. So finesse pimping is where I build a relationship with you over time. I sort of, there's a seasoning period where I manipulate you, give you gifts and compliments, kind of build up your self-esteem. And then over time, there's a process of breaking down your self-esteem and creating this dependency, this full dependency on me, even renaming you, maybe changing your look, those types, maybe even branding you, although it's not that common, but sometimes uh, traffickers will tattoo their name on or some name on their victims. so. And as I'm manipulating you, I'm getting you to participate in your own victimization along with me. So I'll get you to lie to your parents and say, yes, I'm going to be spending the weekend at my friend's house, but really I'm going to be selling you all weekend. Or if I'm really savvy, I'm going to keep you in all of your roles, going to school, going to band practice, whatever you're doing, and then I'm going to be selling you as I can pluck you out of school for a week, sell you, put you right back in so that no one is the wiser. Now, if I do that, then that's called long money. I can make money off of you for months, for years without people knowing about it. That's typically how it happens. It doesn't happen like it shows you on television where a kid is snatched off the street. That's short money and that takes a lot of high risk. So I snatch a kid off the street. People are looking for that kid. So I have a hot product that I can only sell for a limited amount of time. It makes no business sense. It makes good television, but it makes no business sense in terms of what is really happening. So we got to put down that remote and stop watching Lifetime Channel because they are taking you through it. I remember, oh, what's that movie? Taken. Taken was Liam Neeson. The first movie that came out. Everybody saw it and they said, oh my God, I know what human trafficking is because Liam Neeson was in Taken. That, movie says everything wrong about what really happens in sex trafficking. For instance, his daughter leaves the country and is trafficked in Paris or somewhere where we know the U.S. is one of the top three purchasers of sexual services in the world. So statistically, she's probably safer leaving the U.S. and going somewhere else. She gets over there and the Arabs did it, which is a tale that we love to tell in the U S is that the Arabs did everything. And so the Arabs actually trafficked her, but it's a very small percentage of American youth are actually trafficked into the sex trade. And then of course, Liam Neeson, who's an American guy knows everything about trafficking off the bat. He tells her how many hours she has. And, and then he goes over to another country, you know, kicks ass, takes names, burns things, destroys things, never goes to jail because, you know, he's Liam Neeson. And at the end, of course, she lives a happy life and goes on to, I forget if she was going to be a dancer or some kind of musician or an actor. I don't know what she was going to do at the end, but there was no trauma. She was just a wonderful, happy, go lucky girl because Liam Neeson rescued her and all is well. So when in fact... Victims who are victims of sex trafficking suffer horrendous abuse and sometimes lifelong trauma, lifelong trauma. So in human trafficking, there's the trafficker and typically there's the bottom or the bottom bitch and that's the assistant manager sort of in sex trafficking, teaching the victims how to be involved, sort of doing the sex act efficiently, effectively getting the money there are recruiters, there are groomers, sort of people that go out and buy you the whole clothes and make sure that you, that you understand the business. There are security and connectors. These are people that might be driving you to the truck stop. You know, they want to actually get in the truck with you and watch because they want to make sure you're not talking to the trucker and trying to get them to help you escape or anything like that. And then there's these connectors, sort of these people that are loosely connected to the organization. But they're around neighborhoods and and they see runaways or they see vulnerable kids and, and they'll approach them and say, hey, you know, do you need something? Like I can hook you up with somebody who can make sure that you're taken care of. So I talked a lot about supply or the victims, but I want to talk a little bit about demand, the customers, because who are the customers that are purchasing these kids and these adult women? Well, again, it's not the creepy guy that lives under the bridge, because the creepy guy that lives under the bridge can't afford the premium product of purchasing a sex trafficking victim. So, you know, it's largely men, largely men in professions that pay enough money for this person to be afforded working class or middle class or more. Truck drivers, healthcare professionals, city employees, drug dealers, law enforcement, judges social workers, teachers, state employees, politicians. I can go on and on and on. And I'm not saying this as a matter of opinion. I'm saying this because we did a research study and these are the professions that we named that some victims checked off the boxes that yes indeed they had had commercial sex with these people in these professions. It makes sense because these are the the folks that have enough money to purchase those services. So, what can you do? You can become the most compassionate, the most committed, the most effective advocate that you can be. And so you'll see me throughout this podcast say over and over, let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. And so that's the purpose of this podcast is to really bring on experts in the field that can teach you how to be an effective advocate and get in the fight. It's time for us to end human trafficking. I want to remind you that there's not a freedom that you enjoy today that was not bought and paid for you by the struggle and the pain and the marching and the picketing and the bleeding and the dying and the silent suffering of other people. It was always the advocates outside the White House, outside the State House that fought for all the privileges we enjoy and everything that is right with the world. It was us who were outside the buildings yelling and demanding, picketing, arguing, and not willing to spend one more day without the thing that we want that always made the difference. When people care about people, wonderful things can happen. When we care about human trafficking victims, we can do tremendous things. For example, when we care, we can make sure a rescued child can fall asleep every night without fear of being raped again and forced to work. When we care, we can make sure a foreign survivor feels at home in our country and in the world. We can make sure laws are passed that not only help one, but help the many. We can work to help a survivor find the courage to finally testify against her trafficker. When we care, we can make sure a 12-year-old knows that he is loved and wanted, regardless of how hard he had to work for little or no pay in the past or what he has to give us now. We can help a woman who was sold to the highest bidder talk about it for the first time. And we can help a man that was beaten and forced to work feel like a man again. When we care, we can make sure a teen respects and appreciates her body and dreams of what her mind can do. We can make sure a traumatized and trafficked woman sees past her demons. And we can make a family forever grateful for the return of their recovered daughter. When we care, we can make sure a survivor who uses drugs to cope with their trauma puts down the needle and deals with their past. And when we care, we can make a faith-based community use their time to put the things into practice that their creator stands for. We can make policymakers change laws, the community to know what to look for to identify victims, and require systems to respond effectively. We can make forgotten people who live in the shadows be recognized, receive justice, and reintegrate back into their communities. When we provide justice, we can help a survivor who has been rescued celebrate a lifetime of freedom. And we can do this every day. Because Martin Luther King cared, we have civil rights for all people. Because Cesar Chavez cared. Because Harvey Milk, Malcolm X, Susan B. Anthony, Rosa Parks. Gloria Steinem, Audrey Lord, Gandhi, because you care. That's what brought you to this podcast today. Those who have the courage to care transform everything they touch, and nothing on earth is higher than that, nothing more sacred, for it takes great courage to care. Thank you for letting me provide you this brief overview of what human trafficking is in terms of sex and labor, in terms of domestic and international victims. And I hope you'll tune in each week to the podcast and learn more and more and more. And let's build a community of good, effective, knowledgeable advocates. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.